friendos, and welcome to episode five of the Sin Essential Podcast. I am Sarah Gore, and with me, as always, are John Gilpatrick. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Recovering from a shark attack. Beautiful. Appropriate for this. Still alive. Still alive. (laughs) Glad to hear it. Um, And also with us are uh, Aaron Birthday Boy Pinkston. Woo! How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. Well, the, the coin came up heads, so... Uh, everything's fine. I've reevaluated my life, and uh, I'm going to be a better person now. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Getting that, um, getting that the second movie we're chance. talking about this week is No Country for Old Men. If you couldn't tell, lots of coin tosses. Yes, lots of coin tosses happening. Yeah, I guess uh, I, it's my pick. It's my pick for the week, and I'm super excited to talk about it because it's. Uh, probably one of my top five favorite movies of all time, wow. which is surprising because I had felt that way since it came out. I was like, this, I think this is one of my favorite movies. And so it's already always kind of been in the back of my mind as that. Uh, so when I rewatched it, I was like, I wonder if this is still true because I haven't seen it in a long time. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely still true. <laughs> <laughs> um, what about you guys? Uh, John, when was the last time you saw it? Uh, well, I, just yeah, other than when I just watched it uh, a few hours ago. Um, honestly, I'm not sure. It's definitely been a little while. It's a movie that I saw when it first came out. I was like in my sort of formative uh, cinephile uh, couple of years there. And I was like seeing everything when it came out and I was just kind of getting into serious movies. Um, and so I really loved it when it first came out. I remember seeing it twice. I saw it once with my dad and once with my best friend uh, while it was in theaters. And I loved it both times, and especially the second time, because, you know, the first time, I think we can probably all agree, it was like sort of a jarring experience, especially once you get to the last few scenes. Um, and so it was fun to, like, revisit those uh, and and sort of pay closer attention to every word that's said, because it's one of those movies. Um mm-hmm. But uh, I saw it again in college. I took a class on... I only took one class on movies, unlike, I think, both of you. But um, we studied this one really closely, and we actually read the book and did sort of like a screenplay novel comparison between the two. So that was a big factor into one of those... into that class I took. And uh, honestly, I can't remember seeing it since then. Aaron, what about you? Uh, It's been a few years for me as well. I think... Probably, probably about three years or so. Um, I actually didn't see this in theaters, uh, which is sad. Um, so the the first time I saw it was on DVD, probably pretty shortly after it came out. Uh, and then it's. I think I just randomly watched it one night with my wife a couple of years ago. I think it's it's one of her favorites. Um, and of course, I mean, it's a great movie. I love it. So, uh, it'd been a couple of years, but I, I, I as usual, I just rewatched it again uh, a few days ago to, to prepare for this. And I mean, it is as striking and as intense, uh, as it ever has been. There were definitely times, especially like in that sort of mid set piece, mid film set piece where, uh, you have, uh, where, where Anton and, uh, Llewellyn first kind of come together for for the really for the first time and then you know he's walking down the street and shooting at him and everything uh i was as uh, you know i had my fingers you know up 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 to my face and then was on the edge of my seat and all those cliches as as i was the first time so uh, i think it, it really uh still a really effective movie even even when you kind of know everything that's going to happen it's it's not as shocking maybe 
but it still is as suspenseful um, as it ever was. So that's I think that's a, a point in its favor. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm glad you um, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask uh, for both of you since I think we've all seen it. All of us have said we've seen it a few times. If the tension was still there for you, because I think at least for me that first watch was like white knuckle. Like, yeah, you don't like if I hadn't read the book yet, you know. And so I'm just like, what is happening? What is going to happen? <laughs> like, who is this man? He's terrifying, you know, really on the edge of my seat. Um, and so that was actually something that wasn't really there when I rewatched it. I think I must have seen this more times than I even remember um, because I just knew every single beat of this movie. Like I was ready for all of it. So, but it didn't ha- like hinder my enjoyment in any way it was almost like i was like oh i can like comfortably watch this instead of being like yeah. sick to my stomach yeah yeah oh. for sure was it still there uh pension still there for you john um i would say not as much also um generally speaking like when i watch movies like this a second time i tend to pick up more on like the humor that sort of went over my head the first time um because like i can't breathe you know (laughs) so i'm (laughs) sitting there watching it the first time and like just like on the edge of my seat and not really in a place to laugh but the second time and and in subsequent watches especially this last time around just kind of sitting there and laughing at some of the like funny things with uh uh, tommy lee jones and uh and his uh deputy and um stuff like that i mean even anton chigurh is not as like you know sort of deathly horrifying i think he, mm-hmm. because he does have like a little bit of a i mean absolutely twisted but still a sense of humor um so i think that that's the stuff that i generally pick up on more after watching it uh, a few times i think it's just it, it's just so engaging from the first uh moment through to the very end that is why it, it still has that effect on me um I mean, I'm. Uh, sometimes I think I've, I, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, I have uh, those attention deficit disorder problems that that a lot of people in our generation have. So, especially when I watch a movie at home, even even when I am trying to not <laughs> look at my phone or open up my laptop or you know just kind of get lost in in thoughts. I, I mean, it happens to me more than I, I would hope for. Um, but when I sat down and, and watched. No Country for Old Men again a few days ago. I just, I, I'm just so in it. Uh, the characters, every single character in the film is so rich. And I hope we talk a lot more about some of the small performances in the film. Um, there are some gems. Oh, yeah. Some have very, well, everybody in the movie has a very few lines. Yeah. But there are some people who are in it for only a couple of minutes and just, I just like <laughs> like i like never forget some of those people like they i can yeah. picture them i know exactly what they're wearing i know exactly all the mm-hmm. scenes around them like i love some of these small characters so much so yeah so i mean just it. Uh, everything <laughs> with that it just it becomes so engaging uh the film and, and the craft i mean the cohen's know exactly what they're doing in every second of this film uh and and though like films that i respond to the most isn't necessarily a genre thing or a humor thing. It's a filmmaker who has complete control of the film. Uh, and it, that, that sort of thing is kind of hard to qualify, but it's something that I can absolutely feel. And, and this is one of the examples of, of a film where that's just the case. And, uh, and so because of that, I think is why I have that sort of, 
uh, vibe from the film still where I'm just totally engaged and totally in it. And it just, you know, that tension uh, builds up because of that. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, like I think I think probably a good place to start. Not that we have to go through the whole uh, whole movie, but um, just those first. I guess you probably want to call them two or three scenes, almost. Mm-hmm. That yeah. it starts with Tommy Lee Jones's uh, opening monologue delivered in voiceover, and all of these like beautiful shots of uh, West Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of people that. Have absolute perfect beautiful control it's roger deacon so every single shot in this movie yeah is no i <laughs> one of the things that one of the pieces we'll have on the site this week is uh as we've done a few times is a reevaluation of the oscars um of course this year was it was the battle between no country for old men and there will be blood um and but as i was watching this i knew i i know obviously roger deacons has never won an oscar which is just a complete travesty um <laughs> But uh, so when I'm watching this, I, I know that fact because I know it's Roger Deakins and like irrespective of competition or whatever else, I'm, I'm watching this film and I'm like, how was this like, this is one of the most gorgeously and brutally shot films I've ever seen it. I mean, it, it could, you know, it, it could be nominated for like an all time you know, cinematography sort of award, like top 10 best looking movies ever. Um, but then you also have to think that, yeah, uh, there will be blood was pretty good looking too. So know, you kind of have to, you kind of have to remember that and maybe, maybe take a, a step back, but I haven't seen no, I haven't seen there, there will be blood in a long time. So I, I wouldn't, I personally wouldn't feel comfortable having to decide between those two. But when I watch this, I'm just like, how did this not, get the prize for for the best cinematography for the year it's just mind-boggling well and that year also i'm I'm excited to read the piece because i think that i'm gonna say and probably a lot of other people say is like not just in best cinematography but irrespective of all oscar categories like that might be one of the strongest lineups of any oscar category in history because you've got these two movies that we that you mentioned no country for old men and um, there will be blood, and obviously there will be blood. Um, took the uh, prize for uh, Roger Elswit, and then you also had um, really strong work from uh, Atonement um, and the oh, Diving yeah. Bell. The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Have either of you guys seen that movie? I've seen. Uh, I saw when I was in college. A yeah, long, long I mean that ago. like is is storytelling through cinematography. It's it's right. really. Um, quite incredible. And the fifth one is also Roger Deakins for the assassination of Jesse James by the coward, coward Robert Ford. Um, and Another so, really good movie. Very strong gear for Western Western movies. Western sort of Makes me happy, happy like, like girl. Neo-Westerns, <laughs> neo right? They're all yeah. like a little bit off-kilter. Um, I think what Roger Deakins does so well here is like it's not... I mean, you think about some of the movies he's shot and like some of them are so showy and like it's not a bad thing because like i mean the guy is probably the best cinematographer who's ever lived um (laughs) but not not to be hyperbolic but uh like what he does here i think is like not nearly as showy as what he does in some of his other movies and i think that's really cool like some of the shots you can watch skyfall and be like that's so pretty like that's so cool but i watch this movie and i see like the way that anton chigurh's like feet come under the door and like obscure the light and that's mm-hmm. like the most like tense shot like i've ever seen and, and there's no sound there's nothing it's just the light goes away and it's amazing and I like think, some of the shots or like, even just 
like like you said, Skyfall is a gorgeous movie. Um, but it's there's something different about saying, oh, look at this shot where I feel like the whole set is on fire and there's like a silhouette walking in front of it. You're like, yeah, of course that's that's beautiful. And then here you're like, look at these boots laying on the ground with a bunch of scuff marks. Oh my god! Holy yes, shit! I love the this scuff is saying marks. so much. This is gorgeous. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's also just some real like poetic beauty as well. Like there's, I think it's in that first or second scene in the film when Llewellyn has come across uh, the the um, the sort of circle of trucks with the the uh, the drug, drug deal, deal gone, gone bad, bad. Yeah. and and there's there's a there's a brief moment where he kind of looks in the distance and he sees this pit bull who's just kind of like looking back at the camera and walking away and limping and it's just like a really quiet moment that that tells you a lot about the sort of brutality of the nature and and the violence that's happened but it's also just this like glimmering sort of beautiful shot that is is kind of a a pause in in the action before there really has been any action uh and and sort of a sort of a respite to kind of let you know like or, or at least to give you a moment to kind of catch your breath to for for what's gonna happen you know in the next in the next couple of scenes where it just becomes like a huge chase film for for a couple minutes just i mean really great stuff and and of course the cohen's deserve a lot of credit for that too just in their in their ability to craft these scenes especially early on i mean i feel like i've only seen this film a couple of times but as i'm watching it again like i feel like i know every moment as it's happening because everything is so self-assured and just amazing narrative cinema um i don't know this movie's great movie is great (laughs) you're probably talking about how beautiful it is uh all day yeah Um, but uh, something that I'm really excited to get to, because I, I misspoke a little bit earlier, like I'm a big fan of Cormac McCarthy, but I actually have not read this book. Um, but John, you have. I have. Um, and so all I know up front is that I heard, I think even when it came out, that it was uh, an unusually faithful adaptation that yeah. the Coens sort of, I don't know if you want to say like deterred from what they normally do and where they get a little more playful with it, but they were like incredibly faithful to the book. Is that... Correct? Is that true? Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so I read this book in college. It's been, I guess, seven or eight years. So it's been a little while. But I was going through some of my old papers to see if I can, like, go back to those days when I was reading. Yeah. I, I remember, like, you know, the, the book is just as good as the movie. It's great. It's I remember exactly where I was when I was reading it. It's so good. Um, it is very... Like, you can read the book and watch the movie and say, like, these are cut from the same cloth. Uh, There are some differences. Uh, I think that... I mean, if you've read anything from Cormac McCarthy, If the Road or whatever, like, it's terse. It's, like, very descriptive, but it's not, like, poetic necessarily. It's almost... It's, like, a little harsh, right? Just in the way that he uses language and punctuation and stuff like that. But I think you get that in the movie, too. What are some of the differences? Um, like in the book, there's a lot more with um, Sheriff uh, Sheriff Bell 
and but it's it's presented differently like whereas in the movie you have him like having conversations with his wife or with his deputy or whatever in the book it's it's like him talking directly to you um and actually the way they present it in the book it's all italicized so it's it's more like exposition than anything else oh Um, that's interesting yeah so that's that's definitely a little bit different there's a big uh, plot difference late in the in the movie, um, I guess, and in the book too. Uh, I don't know if sh- is it now the right time to get into that stuff. Um, you know why not? Okay, so we'll in, the, in the movie you have uh, this scene where Anton Chigurh goes and visits Carly Jean, and um, you know asks her to call it in the air, and she kind of refuses, and then you see him literally just like walking out and scraping his shoes, and then he gets into the accident. And in the book, like he kills her and it's not, it's not, uh, a question. Like they describe it exactly as it happens. And that's just like another plot point. Um, and so the Coens decided to, I guess, leave us in a little bit of mystery as far as that goes. Hmm. Um, I but, didn't I see it as mystery. Yeah. I argue against okay. that. I Go think ahead. that there's a shot. So this is something that I talk about, um, I already talked about earlier this week in an art, one of the articles on the site, where I talk about the use of violence in the film and the way the Coens decide to show it is that there is a clear, like you can watch it like decrease as the movie goes on. Like the threat of violence never decreases. It only goes up where you're just terrified who's going to die by who and how terrible is it going to be? But how much you see of it starts to be less and less. And there's more and more distance between Anton and his victims until we get to the final death, which is Carla Jean's, where you don't see it at all. But at this point in the movie, they're trying to teach you that you don't need to see it to know what happened. So he's not scraping issues. He's checking them for blood. Right. The way we saw him carefully move his boots out of the way as he watches the pool of blood from Woody Harrelson's character, Carson Wells, seep towards him on the floor. He looks at it. And just picks his feet up and moves them out of the way. And so, like, that was, I feel like that was their way of trying to say, like, we're not even going to show you the pool of blood later. Like, we're, n- we're not even going to need to do that. You should know what happened. She's dead. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I always sort of, when I watched this, even the first time, I was like, okay, like, I, she seems dead. oh yeah but i do remember there being conversations about it uh after Mm. the movie came out um and so i think that like their intention was pretty clear but because you don't see it like it sort of asks you to have that conversation about like what that scene was about um but but like i said in the in the book it's it's all there so that's like i guess probably one large difference um there's also uh, the book begins before the movie does, so the uh, where you have um, Anton in the uh, sheriff's station and he chokes a guy with his handcuffs, like that starts earlier, and so we see him get picked up and we understand why he gets picked up, and um, and then you know it kind of proceeds from there. But there's a little bit more context to that, and I think those mm-hmm. are like the only like major differences. So like you said. Um, as far as a Coen Brothers movie, like pretty faithful to the source text, uh, a lot more than you might expect, given their sort of uh, history and their sensibilities. That's interesting about the the opening scenes of the film because I I do kind of feel like those scenes with Anton Chigurh are a little hard to place in the time as it's cutting from 
his actions uh, getting to um, trying to get to uh, the town, you know, where where Llewellyn is and, and the stolen money was um, and cutting between that and, and Llewellyn as he finds the money. It is kind of hard to place exactly where those are in time because right. there, there's very little explanation as to what he's doing or where he's going until a little bit later on when when the sheriff you know mentions or the after he's picked up by the by the police and he it's kind of uh it's it's a little mentioned after the fact by the sheriff who's describing you know this other police officer who'd been killed um so yeah that's interesting that it maybe in the book it was a little more obvious uh i don't think it's it's bad in in the movie Not in any way like yeah. it, it's just it's just a little maybe even makes it a little bit more ethereal as as they're introducing sugar um to the viewer um because he's he's obviously such a out of this world out of this place and time kind of personality uh and character that i mean you really do need to build him up in an interesting way and obviously the film does that yeah um not to continue to reach red stuff that you listeners may have already read this week but um something that i really like about those opening scenes is that the first, you know, after we get these beautiful Roger Deakins landscape shots, the first two scenes are both murder. Like, they're both deaths. They're both shocking and horrifying um, in super different ways because the first one is the strangling with the handcuffs, and the second is when Chigurh takes the cop's car, flags down another driver, and without doing anything except this very polite exchange, like, excuse me, will you get out of the car, sir? Will you hold right here? And he, he does... <laughs> He does because he's just like, well, you're in a cop, you're in a cop car. We you don't seem like you have your cop badge on. And before he can put two and two together, he's already dead. Yeah. It's, um, it's such a weird. This, these two yeah. follow the VO. The last thing we hear from Ed Tom Bell in voiceover is him saying, "I'm afraid, basically, to go out in the world and meet something I don't understand." Mm -hmm. you'd have to put your soul at hazard you'd have to say okay i'll be a part of this world and and then these scenes so it's almost like the coens want to ask you the viewer like hello welcome to the world of our movie this is what it is will you be part of it <sighs> like like we're not gonna we're not gonna dick around here we're gonna get straight to mm -hmm. it it's not great <laughs> yeah that's such a strange interaction um I mean, it's perfect. It, it, it doesn't really even totally feel like the guy is the guy who Anton kills with the um, uh, with the the cattle, not prod, but air gun or whatever it is. Yeah, it's like a, uh, it's like I looked it up. It's something like a captive bolt. Yeah, the bolt. bolt. Yeah, yeah, it's called a bolt. Um, he doesn't even really seem like he's bewildered or confused by this person it, it, it kind of does seem like he's just trying to be polite <laughs> yeah um, which i don't know if if that's like a west texas thing obviously the setting for the movie is it's so specific and and so important um but yeah i'm i'm not sure it, it's it's just kind of bizarre and and that obviously hits you i mean it, it hits the audience it hits the viewer and with the same force that that the the bolt hits the guy in the forehead. So um, it's really a nice shock. Yeah. It's um, it's a sort of a weird blend that McCarthy likes to put in a lot of his novels, I think where he has a lot of nostalgia for 
West Texas and the past and cowboys and this sort of lifestyle that we assume or small town America, or even just if it's as specific as what West Texas used to be, but mm-hmm. isn't anymore. Um, he has a lot of nostalgia for that, but he's also, he doesn't have a lot of, uh, he doesn't really romanticize it the same way or the way you'd think somebody who was nostalgic for that would, because uh, his books do not really pull any punches pretty much ever. Like he might <laughs> love the scenery. He might love this land, but people are going to die and it's going to be horrible. And <laughs> you're, yeah. it's like, you're going to really get beat up over it. It's not just and dying. So, like, it's suffering. These, <laughs> yeah. Having these characters in here that are like, cause there's a couple, there's, there's that man. And then uh, there's the poor, the poor man with the chicken truck. Who's just like, oh, brother, I've been there. Let me tell yeah, you, yeah. the airport. I just want to help you out. And then we don't see him ever again, but we do see Sugar driving his car. <laughs> so. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, and even more than that, we see him spraying down the bed of the truck, you know, to get all the feathers and, and whatever else yep. might be in there. From, yep. <laughs> which makes you think that he had the man actually unload the car or unload the truck. There, There's kind of that thing where, you know, because you don't see the the mm-hmm. interaction, but yeah, you know, he asks him if he can do it, and so you kind of <laughs> have the idea that oh, maybe he just did it, and then Anton killed him, and then drove off. Um, I think that character is a good a uh, good place to pivot into some of the other smaller roles that uh, just like, might have I mean, stuck with you. Great, amazing Ooh. stuff. That I this it's totally a Coen Brothers thing. I mean, every single one of their films are just full of. Uh, Every character being important. I mean, you see it in Fargo. You see it in, uh, you see it in, um, yeah, really, just every film that they do. And and this is obviously, you know, uh, a great example of that. From you know your your psychotic killer to you know the the front deskman at at a motel or you know um, you know a person who works at a gas station. Every character is given like the same opportunity to tell their story, like in that scene that they're in. I mean, it's just really just amazing stuff. Um, why don't John, why don't you, you yeah. want to highlight a few? Well, the, you mentioned works at a gas station. That's one of my favorite guys uh, for sure. Yeah. Is. I always call him Temple, Texas guy. Uh, oh, I love Temple, Texas man. <laughs> I always want to go to Temple, Texas. Cause of that guy, uh, and, uh, he, you know, I mean, that's like one of the best scenes of the movie, I think, where you see sort yeah. of what Sugar's MO is, and it's just kind of like fucking with people and then maybe killing them. And, to to uh, clarify, it's the uh, scene where he uses the quarter and asks the man at the, the counter, um, what, what's the most you ever lost in a coin toss? Yeah, which is such like a weird question. <laughs> It's like right, a crazy question to ask. And he's like, yeah, oh, I'm, maybe, I'm, I'm maybe, sure. <laughs> maybe people had coin toss more uh, specific coin tosses back in the, uh, yeah. the late seventies, early eighties than they than they do today. I don't know. Maybe that's a thing of the past. But... No, I was wondering. I was like, how would I answer that question if somebody asked it to me? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But um, um, but yeah, that please. seems great. I like that guy a lot, and I just think that it's it's just you know. Uh, I don't know what the actor's name is. I should probably should have looked it up, but um, somebody who you don't see in a lot of movies, a character like this, and, 
obviously mm-hmm. like you can relate to the situation that he's put in because he didn't ask for this, but it's you know the scariest thing that he's ever going to deal with in his life, and like he probably deals with it exactly like I would, where he says, "Is something wrong? Like I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Like are you okay?" And you're like, "He didn't do anything wrong, but he's apologizing because this is a maniac, and that's what normal people do when they're confronted by maniacs." Yeah. So this is Gene Jones is the yeah, actor. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the look on uh, Anton's face. The the little the moment whole, that Harv- the whole scene. Well, yeah, the whole <laughs> scene, but specifically the 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 facial uh, expression that Javier Bardem gives when he uh, when the the gas station clerk uh, says that he got this gas station through his wife's family, uh-huh. uh, which is just like. I don't. I, I don't know if I can totally explain uh, describe it, but the the look on on Anton's face of like just like strange pity. <laughs> he he literally chokes on the uh, sunflower seed yes. that he's eating yes. through most of the scene. He does this little like, <clears throat> it's the and then stares too. at him as if he has said something truly absurd. <laughs> yeah, and just like he says, you married into, it. and he's like, well, that's. If that's how you want to put him, he's like, I'm not putting it anyway. Right. Buried into it, and so right. you're just like, you're kind of laughing because of the sunflowers and the coughing is so weird. But you're also like, I don't understand why he's angry. What's going to happen to? Well, I mean, obviously, I think it, it's such a strike on his, on the man's masculinity. You know, like that whole cowboy culture yeah. in West Texas. So I, I mean, it makes it, it makes kind of se- it makes some sense, but it's obviously like such a absurd way to react to that um uh, yeah that's a great little moment and just an amazing scene um similarly uh, kathy lambkin in a, in a scene that happens a, a few a little a little while later uh she's the desert air man uh the manager of the <laughs> the sort of little community or trailer park trailer or whatever park. it is yeah, that well and lives and she's really the only character that really gives it to anton through the whole I movie know. verbally and it <laughs> And and the way he responds to that is is equally amazing. I mean, it's almost like a little bit of frustration, a little bit of admiration. Um, but he's he walks out of that room, and you know you know that she's uh, she's probably the only one uh, in the film who's who's really <laughs> who's really I, won over him. So that's a great another great. I love scene. that scene so much, and I think like if you actually like try and contextualize it with the rest of the movie, it makes a lot of sense that I mean. When you describe it, you see Anton having this conversation with this woman who is, you know, basically nobody in terms of the plot. And we already know Anton doesn't care if you're nobody, like he'll kill you if it suits him. But uh, the the thing that's it's interesting is that she pushes back really hard. So you'd think it would be this like death, death sign. Like she's going to yeah, die. Like absolutely. she can't talk to him this way. But Anton loves rules. He loves to follow a certain set of rules. <sighs> For his life. He doesn't lie ever in the movie. He always tells people exactly what he's going to do. It might be a little confusing, like the way he s- describes himself and the way he speaks. It's not to say that people listening understand what he means, but he's not trying to hide what he wants. He just thinks that he is being as clear as he can. Like, I made a promise to Llewellyn that I would kill you, Carla, if he didn't do what I wanted and he didn't. And it doesn't matter that he's dead. I promised that I would kill you. So I'm going to like, that's how he lives. But this woman at the motel is like, 
Did you not hear me, sir? Like, <laughs> I can't give out information. Me? Those are the rules. And I feel like that's the part where he's like, yeah, you should follow rules. Doesn't matter that I'm here. You should just do it. I like that. <laughs> that's great. That's so good. I, I'm surprised that we haven't talked about my, my favorite, uh, which is Carla Jean's mom. Oh, sure. Beth Grant. In the, in the movie. Do you know how many people I know in El Paso? Yeah. Uh, me with a zero. Hold great, up. great character actor, Beth so Grant. Good. Yeah, who's, such who's a mean like, mom. I love her. In everything, she's great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you guys know the name uh, Margaret Bowman? Uh, no, I don't. So she she isn't actually is uh, she, her her role in No Country is actually uh, doesn't really stand out among uh, many of the great little gems that we get. But I immediately recognized her on this. Uh, watch from another recent West Texas movie, Hell or High Water. Have you guys seen oh, this? I have not. I saw it. I saw it. She is the the steak dinner waitress. Oh, I love uh, that lady. Oh my God, that's the best scene be the, of that movie. It might be the best performance of the year. <laughs> um, and just an amazing scene. If you haven't seen Hell or High Water, it is uh, definitely a watch. It owes a lot to No Country for Old Men, I think. Uh, it with the the setting and, and sort of the some of the philosophies behind the films uh it's it's another great little uh west texas movie and Mar- margaret bowman she plays the the motel clerk at the del rio which is the hotel that um uh uh the hotel that llewellyn stays at and has his first confrontation with anton uh he comes back and asks oh, for yeah. a second room and and, and she she's can't she's well you can have the room next door <laughs> and he's like no i want i'll take this other room which is kind of situated behind so he can pass the money through the, the uh mm-hmm. little briefcase through through the the ducks um so yeah so that's a that's a good little scene but i just wanted to make sure that uh i mentioned margaret moman because uh that woman is fantastic <laughs> i am so happy you mentioned that because i i love that scene and, and you know I, I watched that film just recently and watching no country for old men now it's like you know i couldn't help but think of hell or high water and and the inverse mm-hmm. is obviously true as well and i think no country for old men is a significantly better movie but um but there's similarities and 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 definitely hell or high water but that was my favorite moment of that movie by far <laughs> yeah uh margaret bowman i know one of her other she has a a decent amount of roles throughout her career it's a lot of like i mean she was on one episode of like Walker, Texas Ranger, things like that. I mean, they're, they're all like basically Texas set movies, but she's also one of the town's people in Bernie, which is a, another West Texas oh, movie yeah. that I love. Um, the Jack Black, Richard Linklater movie. Uh, I love that film from a couple years ago. So I recognize her from that as well. Uh, just shout out to, to my to my main gal, Margaret Bowman. <laughs> she wants to come on the podcast sometime. Oh man, that would I would be terrified oh, actually. Open call, Margaret Bowman, if you're listening. <laughs> I, I would love <laughs> I would love it, you. but I would be so intimidated. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the the smaller performances in this movie, but I think we can all agree that the main cast of Javier Bardem, Josh Brolin, and Tommy Lee Jones is just oh my god, they're all phenomenal. <laughs> really, um, Josh Brolin, like I I actually didn't know him from his like stuff in the 80s where what is he in like goonies or something yeah I think yes. he's in the goonies yeah. yeah so i've never i've never seen goonies i've never Sorry. seen it either uh, 
But I think I watched I, it in, in middle school was. once for some reason, yeah. like in middle school. Uh, yeah, I don't care to revisit it. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's yeah. a movie that has, uh, right. it may have some nostalgia out there, but I, I think people kind of recognize it's not very good. We just lost half but, of uh, our but, listeners. But to get back to you, Josh Brolin. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I didn't know him from anything. This was like the first time I'd ever seen him. And he just blew me blew me away as Llewellyn Moss. Um, I was reading in a little bit of research that he was actually really nervous to do this movie because there is so little dialogue that he was mm-hmm. sort of like, what am I going to do for <laughs> all this screen time that I have? Um, and then it took a while working or, you know, a little bit at the beginning working with the Coens to start to get comfortable with all of those silences, which I think he ends up being absolutely perfect at. Um, I don't know if you, if you two had thoughts. Does something that struck you about his performance in, in particular? Uh, Aaron, why don't you? Well, start? I mean, it's, it's definitely a performance that is dictated by the action of the film. Um, obviously, like you said, he doesn't really get a lot of time to pontificate on his situation um <laughs> you know and, and i don't think the character would anyway exactly. um, yeah. you know he has the opportunity to to his wife and he's just kind of like ah, just you know don't worry about it <laughs> um so i mean it he's he's definitely uh, he has to play the role as someone you can in some way um root for and maybe not necessarily like a, a, a real hero but you, I guess you have to maybe better term is to sympathize um, because he is I mean he's he's being hunted by really just the ultimate force a, a shark as we kind of put in the <laughs> intro um, uh, but you can't but that's kind of hard right because you don't get to really see his feelings at all so I think there is a, a interesting balance that he has to play, and and the reason why it works, I think, is because he's he's such an everyman kind of figure, uh, especially kind of set in this world. Um, I mean, if you told me that Llewellyn or Josh Brolin was Llewellyn Moss, just like this, you know, simple guy from West Texas who you know likes to hunt. Uh, you know, likes to, you know, isn't isn't particularly extraordinary in any way, but mm-hmm. is just kind of a, a regular kind of guy. I, I would I could totally believe it. You know, um, I, it's not my favorite performance of his. I, he's an actor. I don't really respond to all that strongly in, in most of the things he's in. Um, I probably prefer him in something like another West Texas movie, Sicario. But, of course, mm-hmm. that character has so much more personality yeah. uh, that it, it, it's sort of hard to compare in a lot of ways. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a very functional performance. And I think he's uh, he's a presence that works um, just completely well without any hiccups uh, or hookups uh, in, in the movie. So, um, for that, I mean, it's, it's, it's a perfectly fine and, and necessary performance. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think that, like, he fits the movie perfectly and does exactly what's asked of him. Um, and Aaron, like, you're sort of describing the, like, very broadly the plot of the movie where, like, a really bad guy chases down a good guy who can't reveal his feelings. And, like, there's, that sounds horrible (laughs) (laughs) without, like, a lot of context. And I think that it, that the character of Llewellyn as the guy who can't show his feelings sounds terrible also. 
but Brolin totally makes it work because it's not sort of schmaltzy or silly, and and he's like, you know, just sort of like a no-nonsense Texas guy that that's thrust in this situation. Like, he didn't really ask for it. Um, and so I he's think... He's more that, of a chaotic neutral. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I, li- <laughs> I like the idea that he's sort of neutral. Like, you don't dislike yeah. him, but you don't necessarily like him either. He's just sort of there. Yeah. He's well, not necessarily a good guy, but he's not necessarily a bad guy. Right. He's just exactly. sort of like somebody who's trying to, to live his life however he can without doing too much harm to anyone else. Well, right. Seems I mean, sort of be how he goes, but the character does, I mean, he does make some foolish decisions, you know, like he's not, he doesn't sort of come across this perfectly. I mean, early on in the film, uh, after he's found the, the money, um, you know, he, in the middle of the night decides he has to go back to this, uh, you know, to, to these trucks, to the spot that he found the money. And, I mean, in I the, believe in the, he describes that as fixing to do something dumber in hell. Yeah, so. and, and <laughs> I guess I guess that sort of realization that he and actualization that he has sort of goes along with that. Like you, he might be doing something dumb, but he kind of knows he's doing something dumb, and there's sort of something admirable in that. I guess just just kind of functionally though, things you don't really think about in a performance that I think he does really well. Like when his character gets shot in the shoulder or like shot in the side or whatever, like you can kind of feel it like he he acts in a way at after that point where you can really really think that he he did you know and um and that's part of performance too that that we don't really ever think about but the believability in in that uh works really well in the movie i agree with that a lot um but i I think i think the other admirable admirable thing is that he still holds his own next to Javier Bardem, who is giving his, you know, Oscar-winning performance of a career um, as Anton Sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And really just, like, like we already talked a little bit about his, his, uh, his facial expressions, but they're just so on point throughout the movie because they're these... I feel the need to call them out specifically and before anything else about it because he's being asked to portray this person who's not really like any human... That any of us know, I would hope, I really hope not. <laughs> but um, his, the way he responds to things, the way this character responds to things is so baffling to the normal human being that I feel like there's a lot that he needs to do, that Javier Bardem needs to do. Because the thing that he avoids is like doing anything over the top because A, that wouldn't fit the character. Um, and B, it might seem like the easy way, like, oh, I got to make him seem like really crazy and evil or, or whatever. And that's not that's not what Javier does. It's these little like facial tics. It's the coughing on the uh, sunflower seeds at the the <laughs> shop owner's response where you're just like, I'm not really sure what this guy is responding to. But like, I'm, I'm getting something here or it's the I don't know. I, it's the same scene, but I'm really like, I really love that scene <laughs> where on his way out when he's telling him uh, telling the shop owner that that's his lucky quarter and you, you can't put that in your pocket with, with all of your other change, but it'll get mixed in with the rest of it. You have, he's like, well, where do I keep it? He's like, anywhere, not in your pocket where, you know, it'll be like, just like another coin, which, which it, it is. Oh <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That's a, that that's a riddle. Said something. He's like, yes, I'm, I'm explaining myself very clearly. And I don't know why the shopkeeper isn't getting it. Like, yeah. yeah. But uh, John, why don't you talk a little bit about how how you felt seeing Javier 
as Anton. Well, it was uh, fun to see. I mean, like I, I, I quoted you, I quoted it along with you. So obviously I love that, uh, that little moment also, but one of the oh, things yeah. that sort of struck me watching it this time was, um, some of the instances, like you think of this character, I think without watching the movie, just your memories of it. And it's like, he's so cold, right? And I mean, I think obviously he kills in like as cold a manner as any other film character I could think of, but he's not necessarily a cold person. And you see it in things like that, where he shows a little bit of personality and, and, um, and there's a few other scenes where, you know, he has some dialogue and kind of carries on conversations and it's chilling in that he's so evil, but he's not like just this blank slate. But there are other sequences in which he is, and I, I think some of those like struck me as a little surprising. Um, like when he there's like a very extended sequence after he blows up his car outside the pharmacy and steals like the drugs, and then he's like going mm. to clean out his wound, and you see him like cleaning out his wound in the bathtub and then injecting all these needles in there, and obviously it's very you know fairly graphic, but you see like just everything that goes into like cleaning a wound. And throughout the entire thing, like, he doesn't once flinch, and, like, you don't see, like, any change in his expression at all, and that, like, to me is, like, scarier than any kill he makes in the course of the movie. He's methodical. That's that's fantastic as well. And you actually, uh, you reminded me of another scene um, where you're talking about trying to see a little bit of uh, this, this, this figure, this, you know, sort of forces personality, and I think a really great moment is when he's talking to Carson Wells right before he kills him. yeah. He's trying to say, um, I'm going to read a little bit of the, uh, the the snippet of dialogue. He says, Anton says, you should admit your situation. There would be more dignity in it. And Carson says, <laughs> you go to hell. <laughs> and so Anton asks, okay, let me ask you something. If the rule you followed brought you to this, of what use was the rule? Where you're like, it's starting. he's starting to get philosophical. And this is something that people he encounters are just like, what are you talking about? Um, and Carson says, do you have any idea how crazy you are? <laughs> and Anton, with this very puzzled, like, raised eyebrow, and he's like, you mean the nature of this conversation? He's like, I mean the nature of you. <laughs> and so, like, he's like, oh, are, are, you, are you talking about my philosophy? He's like, no, like, you. you." <laughs> and just, I think in that, you just see, like, where sugar's sort of interests and the things that he's more concerned with like like what he what is of importance to him is like not the same as what is important to anybody else yeah yeah but that's just not something that he sees or understands which i think is a really interesting sort of tidbit to get out of that character javier bardem is such like a interesting actor i mean first he he kind of from film to film he kind of looks so different like you can see him in something like the the not worth your time eat pray love where he's just this kind of handsome suave like hunk right and then mm-hmm. you see this or in skyfall um or in in some other things where he's he's almost like just strange and grotesque looking um obviously they give him the crazy hair in this um which goes a long way and and it may it may have been a much different performance without that <laughs> without that way. Great I, don't know. I think we all can agree yeah so i don't know i mean he he's he's an he's an actor i haven't quite been able to put my finger on as to why he's such an appealing actor uh unfortunately he hasn't really been in a, in a lot in the last couple of years 
Um, but I'm, I'm actually, I have his IMDb page up right now and he's got a few things coming out next year, um, that maybe hopefully will be good. Uh, I know he was, he was in the, I guess this past year, he was in the Sean Penn movie that basically got laughed out of a number of, uh, international film festivals. Uh, so I don't think that has been released theatrically, but it, it may, uh, at some point, but it's apparently not very good, but he apparently has, uh, lined up a untitled Darren Aronofsky project, which Ooh. if that is something, uh, that would be very interesting because Aronofsky is one of my favorite, uh, filmmakers working today. And, and he also apparently has another untitled project with one of my other favorite filmmakers, uh, Asghar Farhadi. Um, oh. So we'll see if those come into anything, but, uh, and I guess he's, he's uh, rumored to be playing Frankenstein in one of the, the new universal monster <laughs> movies, which oh, I mean, no, uh, whatever. He's, about <laughs> uh, he's, he's, and even to make it better, he's the villain of the next Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Um, which I don't know if, if either of you have seen the teaser trailer for. I, I did um, just yesterday. But he, he looks pretty interesting in it. I mean, the Pirates movies are dimish, diminishing, diminishing returns. returns at this <laughs> point. But, uh, you know, we know he can play a good villain. We've seen him a few times. So maybe that has uh, gives that, that movie enough spark to be worth watching. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So since I since I've totally brought brought down the train here, um, shall we uh, shall we pivot to uh, to to something else? <laughs> to our favorite scenes, I think. It yeah, I mean, I, I think we've 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 mentioned a lot that were were really great. Um, uh, I, I wanted to give a quick quick synopsis of the movie before we hopped into one of the scenes um, at length. Just like we haven't done that yet, uh, and it's a movie that we were discussing has like. It's easy, I feel like it's easy to follow in terms of, like, what's happening with the characters, but then at the end of the movie, you're like, I don't know if I'm 100% sure why any of that happened. But the the gist of it, whether this is not, you know, none of this is especially focused on as the core of the film, it's more about the people, but uh, Llewellyn Moss, Josh Brolin, is hunting, stumbles upon the remains of a drug deal gone bad. Um, and ends up finding the money from that failed deal. Uh, I think it's something like $2 million. million, yeah, I think that's what So he's got a suitcase of $2 million that he obviously then takes takes home. The problem being that the orchestrators of this drug deal, sort of the businessmen, uh, tale of it, uh, obviously they want that money. They the, the the way the things broke bad uh, was not uh, their fault, and they want their cash and they want their product. Yeah. So they have hired Anton Chigurh to get it for them. They unfortunately make the mistake of also hiring Carson Wells to help them, you know, find it. Which means both these men are after uh, Llewellyn Moss, and that's sort of that's sort of where the the two heads butt in. Um, Tommy Lee Jones is the sheriff of the county where this is happening, so he's sort of the, the law enforcement side of things. Never quite ending up in the same scene as anybody else, but uh, sort of watching everything unfold as it does. Well, almost at the very end, he, he almost has arrived. Almost. Almost. Uh, and then Carson Wells is, is, of course, played by Woody Harrelson, which mm-hmm. is um, not exactly a minor character in the movie, but... Um, uh, I think only has two or three scenes, um, yeah. but I mean, Woody Harrelson can't be bad in anything. So uh, <laughs> he's, he's great in this um, sort of as, 
in a, in a lot of ways, sort of an antithesis of Anton Chigurh. Um, obviously, Sarah had, had already kind of talked through the encounter that they have and their their basic differences in, in how they look at the world and how they look at each other um, kind of provides a, an interesting little, what you think is could be a very, very strong tete-a-tete, uh, but kind of turns out to to just uh, be a uh, be a battle that yeah <laughs> be a battle that is a, a lot more one sided than than you think it may be or may have been. I think there was a scene, Aaron, you were hoping to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet. Did you well, want to? I, I don't know if we need to talk about the whole scene, but um, there is sort of an interesting moment in the film that I think encapsulates a lot of the tone, um, for me at least, uh, which happens when Llewellyn has, uh, goes to do, as, as he said, that, that stupider thing. Um, but going back to the, the uh, trucks, I, uh, maybe one of you can, can explain what it is exactly he's going back for. Um, I, 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 I couldn't quite figure it out, even though I've <laughs> kind of seen it a few times on, on this viewing. Um, but in any case, he goes back uh, only to see that uh, some of the uh, people who may be invested in, in this drug deal uh, have also showed up and uh, they chase him down, which is a, a pretty awesome um, foot chase um, for a little while. Um, then he comes across this uh, creek uh, or small river, it may be, uh, and, and jumps in and is uh, then chased by a pit bull. We see a couple pit bulls throughout the movie. And there's just something about <laughs> the way it's shot, uh, this pit bull swimming down the river after mm-hmm. after Llewellyn, that I just find it's just amusing. It's just very funny to me. And I don't exactly know why. Uh, and of course, this encounter ends pretty brutally and, and not funny at all. Once once Llewellyn gets to shore uh, and the, the pit bull gets to him, uh, I won't say exactly what happens, but it's it's a pretty sad and, and one of the more blatant, you know, one of the more blatant acts of violence that we see in the film. One of the more disturbing ones, too. I don't know if it's just because it's a dog. Um, but it, it's it's really kind of an in-your-face moment. So that sort of shift from something that seems, it's kind of strangely amusing, strangely funny, to really quickly being something very brutal and very sad and very tragic and, and a little scary, I think, um, just really sums up uh, what No Country for Old Men is in, in, in a very uh, small microcosm. Yeah, I... I really liked the beginning of that um, scene where you picked up um, where he's lying awake in bed and decides he's going to go back. And you're almost confused as to why. Why would he do that? Like, why on yeah. earth would he go back? No, I know he, I, he brings some water. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah, first, the goes, first yeah. time he comes, the first time he, he's there, um, if you may recall, there is someone yeah, who is alive at the scene uh, and is asking him for water. And, and he sort of almost defiantly, you know, says, no agua. I don't have no agua. You know, I have no water. Um, but it, so one of the things that I know he does consciously, he brings water back for the band. I don't know if that is... I mean, I don't think that would be enough for him to go back. But I mean, I think it's it's certainly something that he has in mind is is to maybe try to save this person or at least give him a little comfort or something. But of well, course, when he gets back, he's long dead. Well, right. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get to. Um, yeah, that uh, 
the question would be more that like the man has been left there for hours at this point. He sees him in the middle of the day. It's the middle of the night now. Like why on earth would you even think that that person was still alive? Like, you know, why is this person who seems relatively like he, he leaves the door open to the man's car. And I don't know if you caught it. It's not super hard to, to tell what he's saying, but what the man is saying in Spanish uh, is there are wolves. Please close the door. Please close the door. There are wolves. And all Llewellyn says is, ain't no lobos. Ain't no wolves. Yeah. And he leaves the door wide open. Um, so it's like it's like this little little bit of like, that. Would, giving that man comfort could have just been closing the door when he asked him to, because it's <laughs> nothing to him to do that, but he refuses. He's like, no, I'm not worried about you. Sort of playing this whole, his whole mentality throughout is that he's not, he's, he's, an, he's this individualist person. He's like, concerned for himself first and right. what he can do and what he can get first. But it seems like that what the him going back is trying to suggest is that he, he might be doing that because that's how he thinks he's supposed to be. And it might be partly how he is, but that there is some sort of like discomfort there that maybe he doesn't know if he wants to be the person that does that. Maybe he doesn't know if he really wants to be the kind of person that could leave somebody who was dying asks you for something simple and you tell them no. Maybe he doesn't want to know himself as the person that didn't go back and bring him water. And that it doesn't matter if the man's alive or dead. He needs to be the person that actually actually went back, even if it was already mm-hmm. too late. The yeah. other really interesting thing about this scene is, and it even tricked me again when I watched it um, this last time, is this sort of scene in a movie like this is what gets the the hero in trouble. I mean, this is going back, returning back here, you know, being being found out, like, he was away scot-free, why do you have to go back? But but sort of in the end, and you, and you later realize that that isn't why people are on his trail, like, going back had, had nothing to do with that, there, there's, there's something else um, that Anton is, uh, is able to, uh, there's another reason why he's able to keep finding him um, that doesn't have anything to do with this uh, this folly. Um, so that's kind of an, an, an a, sort of an interesting trick, I think, in the narrative. Uh, I mean, I may be overstating that, but uh, I, it's something that kind of struck me too about it. I think, no, I think that's totally, that's totally fair. Um, it seems like that should be the thing that doomed him, but really it wouldn't have mattered. Like right. he would have been in the same trouble. The only way he wouldn't have been is if he hadn't taken the money. That's the Obviously. only way that right. he would have been. Right, or if he later on flushed the, the tracker down the toilet or something, yeah. and he gets yeah. a he gets a little bit of hubris uh, towards the middle of the movie. I guess he doesn't quite understand what's coming after him, but he he maybe stands up a little too hard when maybe he could have done something else to get away. I don't know. Maybe that's just the cowardice in me that the thing things that I would do differently. Yeah. I think that not. I you know I don't want to spend too too much more time on this scene, but. Um, I think it's really interesting as well because I think it probably reveals a little something about us as viewers. And earlier, how I said that we think of Llewellyn as, and I'm proud of us that we haven't said Lewin at all because that is a little bit confusing yeah. for the Coen <laughs> brothers. Um, yep. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we said that he's not really a good guy, also not really a bad guy, just sort of a neutral guy. Well, I think that this is probably, like, the one good thing, that, like, objectively good thing he does in the movie is I'm going to go and give, bring this guy some water. And whether there was something else to it or not, you know, that's up for debate. But he still brings the water. And at the same time, when he's going to do it, we're like, what are you doing that's so stupid? Stop. Don't do that. And 
I think it's interesting that we would say that, oh, this guy's just sort of, like, not really a good guy. He's just sort of neutral. And then he does this one good thing, and, like, we all just want to scream at the at the movie screen to have him not do it. Um, so mm. it's kind of a funny, like... I, that feels like Cohen-esque in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of irony. Um, and I, I found it really interesting watching it this time around. If we want to get to probably the scene that needs the, the most discussion, we saved it for last, of course, because it's probably the most, um, I guess, contentious scene for viewers. <laughs> uh, the final scene of the movie, uh, which is nothing but a monologue, more or less, from... Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, who has retired, the case is over, Shigur is gone, um, and all he does is recount two dreams he had about his father, and then the movie ends. Well, that's it. What? Uh, yeah, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, boy, oh boy, I don't even know where to start with that one. I know we need to talk about it, but I, I honestly don't know how to get started. So, so let's go, jump back to 2007 and the first time you saw this. Like, what was your reaction to it? Like, were you pissed off? Like, were you? I mean, obviously you're surprised. I'm assuming, but like, what sort of surprise were you experiencing, Sarah? Yeah, I was a, I was pretty, pretty hard on the line of the people that hated the ending, uh, that hated that <laughs> scene. I was like, well you're an idiot because <laughs> it was great. I, I loved that. Like I was super surprised when all of a sudden it was just over. Um, but at the same time, even if, even though I don't know if I could have even parsed out what I thought the dreams meant, because it's, it's one of those things where it's kind of hard. It's a very McCarthy. It's clearly, I, I assume that I am right, but I have not double checked. So people can correct me if I'm wrong, but sounds exactly like it was stripped exactly from the book word for word because that just sounds like McCarthy's writing to me and that so so trying to figure out what what all of that means and McCarthy's just this like he writes very sparsely but he crams a lot of ideas all in there and it can be really hard to like (laughs) dig through it and figure it out but I thought that that was like the best the best note to end on especially given the title of the movie No Country for Old Men and here you have this old man talking about his dreams of his father who I think as he says uh, earlier in the movie, you know, he's he's older by, you know, however many years than his father ever was because his dad died young. And just like what after, you know, going through this terrible uh, ordeal, like seeing the evil that can be in the world and watching what the repercussions of it have been, like seeing the bodies and seeing the death. um, What does that mean for him to be on this planet sort of i don't know i'm getting a little carried away i'd love to hear aaron uh jump in as well um i don't i don't honestly know if i if i have much more to say that uh than than you just did i think that was um that was very well said i mean uh, obviously in sort of the themes of the film and and the the philosophy of of the film which there's way more of of those things than than you may expect if you just kind of thought about the film from from scene to scene and the, the action of the film um i mean it's it's important um how it how it ends that way um i mean of course i i can see why people uh, are frustrated with it i mean i don't recall if how frustrated I, I may have been the first time i had seen it but you know there there certainly is a shift and it, it's part it kind of partly ties in with what you had uh nicely said earlier sarah about the violence uh, of the film kind of 
falling a little bit more into the background or unseen as the film, uh, you know, in the second half of the film. Um, it, it doesn't exactly, the, the film's action doesn't exactly grind to a halt, but, but there is sort of a different cadence um, through the final scenes of the film. So that, that is a little bit jarring. And I, and I think some particular viewers, right or wrong, who were attracted to the, the movement and the energy of the first half or, or two thirds of the movie, it is sort of a, I, I could see why you would kind of feel like something was kind of pulled out from you at the end. But um, definitely when you think about what the movie's trying to say a little bit more, uh, it's it's obviously a, a poignant, beautiful way to, to end the story. Uh, and you don't really need to see anything else. Unfortunately, I am. <laughs> Because I just uh, I just realized uh, an interesting uh, little bit of a through line. I'm not sure whether this was written, uh, the book exactly, whether it was written before or after The Road. But I think was, uh, something I remember from The sure. Road is the, the motif of carrying the fire and the father and son talking about carrying the fire and the fire is inside you and it's 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 there and it's always been there and you have to carry it mm-hmm. sort of being this like mo- like symbol of hope and that the the second dream that Ed Tom Bell recounts he says you know i i seen he was carrying fire in a horn the way people used to do and i could see the horn from the light inside of it like so his father is riding through the night carrying the fire and McCarthy having like used this metaphor sort of once before, like I, it's almost like a weirdly, which is sort of how I felt, even though I didn't really, I hadn't gotten thought about it this deeply um, when I first saw it, that I, it seemed like weirdly hopeful, um, which is odd because uh, the other thing about the, the end of the movie is that as far as we know, Sugar is still out there and always will be. <laughs> like he has no neat, neat wrapped up end to his story there is we have no idea where he is or where he went or if he's dead or not like he's certainly not with the police no um, whether that bone healed or not yeah <laughs> <laughs> your, your bone's sticking out of your arm mister. Oh, mister yeah oh that was gross it's still gross oh my god oh sorry yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, no Country for Old Men was came out in 2005, the book, and The Road came out in 2006. So very okay. close to each other. It's interesting. He clearly had something on his mind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he was yeah. right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Unless you have something else to add, John. Oh, gosh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I will say that, like, probably the first time I watched this, maybe I was a little bit more down on the ending than you guys were, but... I was also, what, uh, 19, and uh, wasn't well-versed in uh, Cormac McCarthy or some of the, uh, I guess, headier sort of themes going on here, and, and um, so I don't know, I like, I liked it, I liked it because I think I was supposed to like it, um, and, but I, I just didn't totally grasp it. And, and I, I still don't know that I totally do, but I appreciate it. And I think it fits with this movie. I think that this movie needs to end in sort of an obtuse, unexpected way. And it's, it does so. Like, you know, like maybe it's an obtuse, like a burst of violence, but it's not that. So, so even though you're expecting something weird, it, they, he's, they still manage to, uh, 
uh, surprise you in that way. So that's kind of cool. Like, mm-hmm. I appreciate that on, on that level. Thematically, I'm just like, I don't know. Something about this movie, like, I I love it viscerally, and I love watching it and letting sort of the images wash over me. And, and like I said, some of the humor. But it's not something that I think I'll probably ever entirely grasp thematically. And that's okay. But uh, But I enjoy, like, trying to, like, put another piece of the puzzle together every time I watch it. So that's that's one of the things I will always enjoy about No Country for Old Men. Uh, I think that's something that ends up being uh, one of the things we enjoy about most of the Coen brothers. Um, Definitely. Sort of filmography. And I'm going to use that to sort of pivot to, as we as we kind of wrap things up on No Country for Old Men, how do we, uh, how do we feel about how this fits into the Coen brothers, sort of the oeuvre? Oeuvre. Um, Aaron, why don't we... Why don't we start with uh, with you? How do you think that this fits in with their their other films? Um, well, I, I certainly think it's just with the strength of this film, it would be among my favorites of any filmmakers' films. So, <laughs> even though obviously the Coen Brothers have uh, a very long uh, and very varied uh, filmography of you know anything from masterpieces and near masterpieces to um, maybe some things that require reevaluation. Um, they're, they're certainly not uh, uh, filmmakers who are, uh, not every one of their films is, is totally beloved. Uh, and there are certainly many of their films that I haven't seen, um, unfortunately. And I'm not going to tell you which one, so you don't make fun of me. Oh, um, tell us. Isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> But um, but man, I mean, they're they're American master filmmakers and filmmakers that I think more than uh, many of of filmmakers of their stature of their stature uh, in the history of cinema just do completely different, completely wacky sometimes um, and and completely unique films. Um, I mean, if you look at something like even the movie that came out this year, Hail, Hail Caesar. Uh, it's not a film that I love. I know some people do, um, but like you would never see David Fincher or Aronofsky or an, uh, any other, you know, many other great filmmakers that are working today do something just that completely offbeat um, when you know that they could they could return to something as is philosophically engaging or as heavy as, as something like no country for old men and know that they're, you know, making one of the best films of the year. Um, so you, I mean, that's, that's, they're always going to be interesting figures, uh, in, in the film, in the film world. And even if all of their films aren't great, you got, you kind of have to love them for that. John, what about you? Um, I think that it fits in really well, you know, with what they do in terms of tone. I think that, like, most of their films have, like, an undercurrent of sadness, like, really sad. Uh, But they're oftentimes really funny. And, but, you know, there's, like, this sort of existential dread that creeps over most of these movies. And I think No Country for Old Men has that in spades in the sense that, like, (laughs) you have these three characters, which we've talked, you know, a lot about. And again, I'll come back to the idea that Llewellyn Moss is sort of the neutral one. You have Sheriff Bell, who's obviously a good guy, and then you have Anton Chigurh, who's clearly the bad guy. And by the end of the movie, you have one of them is dead, the neutral guy, 
the good guy is retired because he's so afraid of the world, and then the bad guy is off, you know, broken arm but otherwise cool. So I think that that's like it, the movie leaves you with with that. It's kind of a little bit depressing, and I think that most of the other movies sort of do that too. And you have in Fargo, which is my favorite Coen Brothers movie, one of my probably 10 favorite movies of all time that great um scene with uh marge gunderson towards the end where she's got uh i can't remember one of the guys arrested in the back of her car and it's just basically like you know this is such a shitty thing that you did and yet here we are and it's a beautiful day you know and i love that 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 monologue and i think that sums things up really well where it's like holy crap like we are really terrible right <laughs> but there's goodness still out there and let's try to yeah. like deal with that please um and i think that goes throughout most of their films and some of them some of the films deal with that better than others and i think the ones that kind of deal most with that are the ones i most respond to and i think fargo is there i think no country's there and i think um inside lewin davis is there and those are probably the three that i like the most of everything they've done and so so yeah i think that obviously it's it's very much a cohen movie and and definitely they are you know if you asked me like you know what's the one director that like you know you would most look forward to their movie if it was coming out this year and the answer for me is pretty easily the cohen brothers like over everybody else that's working today and so um so i'm a big fan and i'm excited that we got to hash this one out me too <laughs> Boy, this movie is so good. <laughs> but that's going to do it for us. Um, I want to thank the Hemingbirds once again for the use of our brand new theme song. Um, half a second. Off the album, half a second. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Subscribe on iTunes. Yeah. Visit Rate us. Essential. Like us. Read yep. us in Essential. Uh, next, week we'll, good job. next week we'll be diving into... Uh, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, which is a fantastic 1970s uh, Al Pacino vehicle. If you haven't seen it, it's amazing. And uh, we'll, of course, be bringing some great content um, for that film. Uh, And then uh, I think the next podcast will be coming in a a couple weeks before Christmas, sometime before Christmas. So keep the change, you filthy animals. (laughs) Oh, there's... Don't keep it in your pocket the rest of your change. You've got to keep it separate somewhere special. Uh, Yep. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye.